the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Hello, listeners. This is Sam Dyer, and you have me again today. I promise that we will have some guests coming up. We're going to have some talks on esports, and I'm working to get someone to talk about virtual reality and training and in treatment of patients. But for today, you've still got me. So I thought it might be a good idea to do a review of some radiologic studies, how to order studies, and some pointers that might be helpful when you're ordering other modalities. I'm taking this information from my onboarding manual that's on the Learning Center on the PAOS website, especially those that are new to orthopedics. I think this will be helpful for you and hopefully a, a quick review for those that aren't. So without further ado, let's talk about radiology and MSK imaging. There's a question, how do you hide a $100 bill from an orthopedist? The answer is you put it in a book with no pictures. And that is so true. It really is. Almost every patient that I see has some sort of diagnostic study. And if they don't have one, we'll get one. I don't like to use my eyes and my clinical judgment as an x-ray machine. I'd much rather see an image to confirm diagnoses, as would most people that work in orthopedics. So keep that in mind. Pretty much everybody needs to have a film Another common thing, and I want to emphasize this, I get referrals from a clinic sometimes and I just have to tell them over and over, if it's a weight-bearing joint, it needs to have a weight-bearing x-ray. You cannot always see a early joint space loss with a non-weight-bearing film. So important to do this. Make sure that all of your patients get weight-bearing x-rays on weight-bearing joints. What I thought I would do is cover some common routine exams for x-rays, things that we order routinely in our practice, and I think most people would, and hopefully you can compare it with yours. Now, this is by no means the textbook of radiology imaging. It's just a quick go-by and some standards that hopefully will be helpful. So if we start with the spine, we're talking about conventional radiology or what we used to call plain films. Now that it's labeled as CR, computed radiography. Let's just start with the spine. So cervical spine, typical AP and lateral are standard views, but you want to consider flex X if you're looking for instability or spondylolisthesis, and then obliques if you're looking for foraminal stenosis or a pars defect. Sometimes you'll need to do a swimmer's lateral to visualize C7 and T1. Thoracic spine, typically AP and lateral are the standards. Lumbar spine, similar to the cervical spine, AP and lateral are standard, but flex X for uh, instability and spondylolisthesis and obliques for foraminal stenosis and pars defects. Occasionally, I'll have my tech get a what's called spot view of L5S1 to better visualize that disc space. And then sacrum and cossacks AP, which is actually a tangential view, or you could call it AP and a lateral. So those are the routine exams for a spine. For lower extremity, pelvis and hip, very common AP and frog, either the pelvis and or hip. There is something called a Jude view, which is an oblique pelvis, and it helps you to better visualize the SI joints and iliac crest. What comes to mind if someone has a sacroiliac degenerative change, you know, rheumatoid patients, or you have the athlete that's a runner or track star, soccer player, uh, younger that still is skeletally immature, and they have an, a physeal avulsion of the iliac crest. I've seen that many times. Getting an oblique pelvis is a better way to look at that. 
It's also very common to get a cross-table lateral of the hip when someone has trauma to their hip and you can't get a good frog leg because they can't move their leg, like a femoral neck fracture, subtroke, etc. A cross-table lateral is the trauma view. Femur, AP, and lateral are the standard. Very common that you'll need four images for that because uh, a lot of people, you can't get the entire femur on one image. You always want to see the joints above and below, so keep that in mind. Knee, AP, and lateral are the standards. In my practice, we do merchants, and the reverse of that is a sunrise view to get a better look at the patellofemoral joint. We also do a Rosenberg, and that used to be called a tunnel view. Basically, it's looking at the intercondylar notch and the posterior aspect of the joint. Obliques, we don't do as often. Usually, if we're more concerned about a fracture, and typically that is a younger patient, but obliques are a possibility. For the rest of the lower leg, from the tib-fib through the toes, everything is AP lateral and oblique, except for the tib-fib, which is just AP and lateral. And for the foot, if you're looking at the heel, there's a tangential view of the calcaneus called the Harris view. Keep those in mind. And then if we talk about the upper extremity, for ribs, we typically do AP, lateral, and obliques. It's very helpful if these are done on expiration. It helps to visualize the bones better, but you also have to do uh, inspiratory lung film to make sure there's no pneumothorax. Our practice recently decided this was not within our practice, that we should be seeing rib injuries. So for those of you that do, this might be helpful for you. For the shoulder, the basic views are internal external rotation, but working with a shoulder specialist for a lot of years, I can tell you that's not everything that we want. We typically would get a grassy view. And what that is, is kind of a, a rotated internal rotation where you can see the glenohumeral joint better. We would do a dedicated AC joint view and a scapular Y view. And the scapular Y view is to look for scapular fractures, shoulder dislocations. And you can also get an idea of the chromiohumeral space. People that have chronic tear arthropathy will have narrowing of this space. And sometimes we'll get an axillary view, and that's a lateral image of the proximal humerus. You can also see the acromioclavicular joint well with that. There is a trauma axillary that can be done if you're worried about proximal humerus fracture and the patient can accommodate the normal positioning. Humerus, AP, and lateral are standard. Again, the trauma axillary. An uncommon view, but one that can be done if you can't get a good axillary is called a transthoracic lateral. It takes pretty good exposure to get a good one, but it, it's helpful sometimes. The elbow, AP, and lateral are standard. Obliques, typically same as the knee to rule out fractures. I do a radial head view sometimes if I have a subtle radial head discrepancy or I'm concerned. And then some of our upper extremity docs like cubital tunnel views uh, if you're worried about uh, cubital tunnel syndrome or you want to see the cubital notch. Forearm, AP, and lateral. Wrist, AP, lateral, and oblique. One thing I would say about the wrist, we like to do those with a clenched fist. If you don't do it, the patient has a scaphalunate dissociation or a slack, that's SLAC, you might not be able to see it. So a clenched fist AP is a good rule of thumb for your orthopedic views. We'll get a scaphoid view if we're looking for a scaphoid fracture, and I'll get a carpal tunnel view. Not for carpal tunnel syndrome so much, but if I'm looking for a trapezial ridge fracture or a hook of the hamate fracture, this is an excellent view for that. So if somebody falls on outstretched hand, and they're bruised and tender over their thenar or hypothenar aspect, you might miss a fracture if you just get the standard AP lateral and oblique. So consider having that in your uh, arsenal. In the hand, AP lateral and oblique are standard. For rheumatoid arthritis, they'll do a ball catcher's view, which is basically uh, your hands in the position of function and an AP plane. Fingers, AP and lateral are standard.
Okay, so that gets us through most of the routine imaging. Other imaging modalities, and I, I won't go into these in much detail, but MRI, CT, and ultrasound are, are very commonly used. MRI, we would typically use for imaging to look for soft tissue structures and fractures and is a modality of choice for MSK soft tissue pathology. The rule of thumb is if you think there might be a fracture but you don't see one on the x-ray, get an MRI. If you have a fracture on the x-ray and you're concerned that it might be more extensive and needs more workup than a CT scan. And it's not uncommon that you get both the MRI and the CT, especially if it's a surgical problem. Don't forget, with MRIs, you've got to worry about metallic foreign bodies, pacemakers, and that sort of thing. Most practices, I think, or imaging facilities will have screening to check for this. So we'll do an orbit x-ray if we're concerned about a metallic foreign body in the eye, such as people that do welding or construction. Most surgical implants these days are safe and allow MRI imaging. The metallic implants do degrade the images somewhat, but the technical factors are such that you can still get a decent study even with implants. The rule of thumb is about six weeks after a metallic implant, such as a total hip or a total knee. The other thing to think about with MRIs is claustrophobia. A lot of people don't realize they have claustrophobia until they get in the scanner, and then they realize very quickly that they have it and have to come out. So if someone does have it, premedicate those folks with uh, diazepam or similar. There are different strengths of magnets, different Teslas, that's how they're rated, and open magnets Typically, this is, you know, anecdotal. I, I don't know if this is in the literature, but anecdotally, open magnets aren't the same image quality as closed magnets. And there are certain times you'll want to do arthrograms or IV dye. Arthrograms usually for shoulders to look for labral tears. TFCC tears is another common indication. I'm sure there are others that I'm not mentioning. Uh, IV contrast. A lot of our docs will do uh, post-surgical spine patients, or if you're looking for a mass or lesion or looking at a mass or lesion, you want to see if it's vascular, uh, IV contrast is good for that. MRI and CT are similar in the planes that you have. It's typically sagittal, coronal, and axial. And when I used to do CT a thousand years ago, before we really had 3D reconstructions, I would explain it to people, imagine a loaf of bread, right? So the slices of bread, if you take one and look at it, that's an axial slice. If you cut the bread in half and look at the half, the inner part of the loaf, that's a sagittal. And then if you cut the bread from back to front, right down the middle and flip it up and look at it, that's a coronal. So I don't know if that would make sense to you or not by a podcast, but that's kind of what it is. And so you'll have those different planes on CT and MRI. Before CTs were well known, we used to do tomograms with x-ray and you would have this big machine that spun around and around and around. It was pretty impressive actually, but you could do a tomogram where you get different planes and it was helpful to see intraarticular fractures or fractures that were hard to visualize, scaphoid fractures, etc. Ultrasound, a lot of people use MSK ultrasound guided uh, injections these days. Uh, we do have some of that in our practice. It just depends on how you were trained and what your attending likes, but ultrasound can also be used as an imaging modality. Of course, there are Doppler ultrasounds. I'm sure people are aware to look for DBT, but ultrasounds uh, are sometimes very helpful to visualize rotator cuff tears, biceps injuries, especially if the patient can't have an MRI because of cardiac issues or implants, et cetera. 
Well, that's all I've got today. I hope this was a good review for you. And mainly I'm directing this towards some of our newer colleagues. And uh, if you have any other questions or are interested in more of this, I have a pretty good write-up, I think, uh, my onboarding manual on the PAOS website. So hopefully you can take a look at that. And it's open to members who just have to sign in and go to the Learning Center. All right, last bit, I just want to remind everyone that we're having our annual spring meeting in Charlotte in May. There's still seats available, but they are filling up quickly. Also, we're having a virtual part to that meeting. So if you can't go, you could certainly attend virtually. So I hope you're able to attend. A lot of good stuff. I've mentioned it before. Information about it is on the paos.org website. And that's all I've got for today. So I look forward to actually interviewing somebody. We've got eSports coming up this Friday. I'm really excited about that. I am interviewing one of the docs who wrote an article that was recently published in the JAPA, J-A-A-P-A. Believe it or not, eSports is a really big deal. And you think, well, how do you injure yourself with eSports? But it happens. So I look forward to that interview and I hope you will too. All right, that's all I've got. Take care. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.